Let's go to tonight. Let's go to Mark chapter 16. It's our Easter message tonight. Well, unfortunately, I got carried away in my game, and so we're starting a little bit late. So I'll have to try to do the condensed version of our Easter message. So Mark chapter 16, we'll read verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they saw the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Father, I pray that tonight you would put within us a profound appreciation for the feat that you accomplished on this day some 2,000 years ago in conquering death and casting sin forever aside from our reach. Jesus, we thank you. And I pray that you would govern us with your grace today and forevermore. That we depend not upon our own strength, but that we depend upon the resurrection power to live in and through us to follow you for the rest of our lives. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, it was a crisp morning as the women grabbed their spices and headed out. The sun was just beginning to crest over the dark hills. And in their hands, they held spices to embalm Jesus' body. And in their hearts, they held sorrow for their precious hope had been killed just two days, three days before. And he was supposed to be the hope of Israel, the Messiah, the one to save them. And now he's in the grave, dead. And how can a dead Messiah do anything good? Can, can a dead Messiah do anything for anyone? And so with these thoughts, they, they made their way towards the tomb. And just as they reached the tomb... The first rays of the morning conquered the darkness and penetrated and, and the light illuminated the tomb and they could see something that wasn't quite normal. You see, the stone, the great stone that had been blocking the entrance had been rolled away. And as they approached the tomb, there was this mixture of excitement and fear and wonder. And they gingerly approached the open tomb. And when they looked in, they saw not the mangled body of Jesus, but instead 
They saw an angel sitting there. <laughs> and then, they were no longer in a mixture of wonder and fear, but they were totally subdued to fear and panic. And they didn't know what to do. And the angel told them to believe the unbelievable. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Just believe the impossible. <laughs> and he told them there in verse 7, in verse 6, Don't be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified and he has risen. Imagine their astonishment. He's not here. Look, look at the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is risen. And when I read through this part of Mark, right there, those two words, and Peter, just jetted out at me like in bold print off the page. I was like, that's interesting. Here the angel is telling these women to go tell the disciples that Jesus rose from the dead. But the interesting thing here is that Peter is a disciple. So in telling them to go tell the disciples, they didn't need to say Peter, because that's given. Peter's part of the disciples. So they're saying to these women, go and tell the disciples and Peter. There's a special point here about Peter needing to hear the news that Jesus had risen. And it is my curiosity to solve what is that special point. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's something we should just gloss over. Because Mark, who wrote this gospel, that's why we call it the gospel Mark, was a young boy while all this stuff happened. And so what he did being the better writer than Peter, he pulled Peter in as an eyewitness, and the two of them co-wrote the gospel together. So as you read Mark, you'll see a lot of emphasis on Peter. And so there's no doubt that right here, Peter probably taps Mark while they're editing the gospel on the computer right before publishing. He says, you know what, Mark? I've just been thinking about the resurrection lately, and we need to add something that really touched my heart about it. Put, make sure that everyone knows the angel made sure that they told me that Jesus rose. Yeah, the disciples, yeah, they're great. But that Jesus really wanted me to know. we got to let the people know that. Let's put that in there. So I want to, for the remainder of our evening, consider what is the relationship here between Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and Peter? What, are, what do these two have in common and why is it that Peter saw this day as more blessed than life itself. He loved this day beyond life. In fact, he died for proclaiming this day. Crucified upside down, as tradition says. So, real quick, before we look at how Peter relates to Easter Sunday and the resurrection, we need to see how today Easter relates to the resurrection so that we're in context. Then we'll see how Peter fits into this. So, today's Easter. Yay! He's risen. He is risen indeed. You respond. Good. <laughs> Some of you know. Um, I was funny at church today. We were standing greeting people, and uh, we were counting how many people knew what to respond. <laughs> it was really fun. But he is risen. Some people say, like, Happy Easter. <laughs> they don't get it. <laughs> One person I caught off guard was like, He is risen. He goes, He is? Or, no, he goes, Is he risen? I mean, I mean he is risen. <laughs> it was funny. Um, but Easter is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what do we mean by resurrection? Well, three basic points is that basically, Jesus really died. 
And then he really came back to life. And then thirdly, that this is in such a way that it sets him apart from everybody else who's ever come back to life. Because we know that Jesus resurrected some people from the dead, namely Lazarus. But his is completely different. And so let's look at these. First, Jesus actually died. Now, there are people that theorize that Jesus didn't die. And of course, these people that don't want to believe in the resurrection. But that while on the cross, he was in such severe pain, he passed out. And no one knew that, so they thought he's dead. They buried him in the tomb, and three days later, he woke up from the concussion, if you will, wiped the sleep out of his eyes, and rolled the stone away and said, I rose from the dead. And we can't accept that at all. The Romans crucified Jesus. The Romans invented crucifixion. The Romans invented crucifixion because they loved to murder thieves and robbers and criminals. And Jesus was tried as a criminal, and the Romans wanted to put him as a display, all criminals. They, the people they crucified, they did that to point to the public saying, you want to rebel against mighty Rome? You'll look like that. And little children would hide in their mom's arms and don't look at that baby. And What happened to them? Don't be a criminal. Rome will beat you up. And everybody thought, I don't want to mess with Rome. I'm going to be a good citizen. That was their idea. And the Romans perfected murdering and punishing criminals. I shouldn't call it murdering, I guess, if they deserve the death. But they perfected killing criminals. So when Jesus was on the cross, they weren't ones to be fooled. Rome considered Jesus dead. They said, he's dead, take him off the cross. Rome knows when the guy's dead. They, this is their art, killing people. So they definitely knew. We also know because when um, they wanted to make sure that he was dead, beyond all doubt, they took the spear, you might recall, the Roman soldiers, and they jabbed it into the side of Jesus. And when he jabbed it, did Jesus squeal in pain? Oh, you caught me, I'm thinking it. No. <laughs> Not a single reaction, just water and blood came out. He was dead, and they buried him. So Jesus was really dead. There's um, other things such as in our story here we see that the women came with spices to embalm Jesus. If they thought that he just passed out, would they be coming to embalm a dead body? <laughs> it was general public knowledge that this guy is dead. So he really died. Secondly, he really rose. Now, this was not that his body was stolen, as some people contend. Oh, he didn't rise. The empty tomb because the disciples took the body out and they buried him behind the third bush behind the tomb. Well, if that's the case, let me ask you why the religious leaders had to bribe the soldiers to say that the body was stolen. They had to motivate the soldiers to lie with a great sum of money to tell everyone that the body was stolen. Why were they so bent on saying the body was stolen? Because they knew he rose. And they knew that the people knew that Jesus rose. Then the people would know that they murdered the prophet who called himself the son of God. And they would be in trouble. They had to keep this on the down low. So they bribed soldiers to make up the story that his body was stolen. Secondly, the disciples were surprised when they saw the empty tomb. When the, when the women came to tell them, Hey, the tomb's empty. But, yeah, right, Peter and John said. And they had to go foot race to go see it. Now, if they stole the body and hid it, would there be any shock that the tomb was empty? The tomb's empty! Crazy ladies, stop. We hid the body. Shh, keep it quiet. But they were surprised. And then third, 
Jesus appeared to over 500 people after his resurrection on 17 different accounts. He wasn't just stolen, his body was actually resurrected. People saw him. Now others would try to tell you that, well, he resurrected as a spirit. Okay. If he resurrected as a spirit, meaning the body's still there, but his spirit returned and people saw it through vision, then tell me, how did the two women cling to his feet in Matthew 28? You can't touch a spirit. Why did Jesus tell Judas to come and touch the wound on his side? You can't touch a spirit. Why did Jesus take fish and eat it in front of the disciples? A spirit can't eat. All these things show that Jesus wasn't a spirit. He was in bodily form. He actually rose. So yeah, he really died. He really rose. But why is he different than all the others that rose? Because when Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just that this dead corpse had life come back to it, and then it just, okay, round two, let's go. It was that when he came back to this corpse, some sort of miracle that Jesus did made this body into a special body, a renewed, a new order of life. And he came out of the tomb as something special. We see this in um, his suddenly appearing and then disappearing at his own will before people. And then he walked through walls and he walked through the stone at the tomb. And by the way, the angel didn't roll the stone back so Jesus could get out. He did that so that the disciples could see it was empty. Jesus could walk through walls. And then at the end of the 40 days when he went to ascend into heaven, they saw him just go up into heaven. This is no ordinary body. This is a body that never dies. This is the body that Jesus took that he's going to give all of his saints at the resurrection day. When we are raised from the dead, we're not going to have these bodies. We're going to have new form of life type of body. So that is why Jesus is different than Lazarus. Lazarus was just around two. Jesus is a completely new body. And so his resurrection was completely a work of God. That is, all that said leads to the fact that Jesus, in rising, proved that he's exactly who he said he was. The self-proclaimed Son of God. Romans 1.4 informs us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness by His resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. While Jesus was alive, saying, Hey, I am the Messiah. I am, my Father is God. You're God. Yahweh, He's my Dad. I'm His Son. I'm here, God in human flesh. And the Pharisees said, Yeah, right, speaker. You might have a crowd fool, but you can't fool us. Prove it to us. You want a sign? Yeah, we want a sign. Jesus said, Here's your sign. He said this on two different accounts. Matthew 12, John chapter 2. You will kill me. And in three days, I'm going to rise. You'll see me again, and then you'll know I'm the Son of God. And it happened, just as he said so he proved that he is exactly who he is, said he is, the Son of God. So on Easter we celebrate that Jesus came down in human flesh, the Son of God, came down in human flesh to die for our sin and then prove that the payment was accepted by God by rising from the dead and thus proving he's everything he said he is, we're forgiven. That's what we celebrate on Easter. So that's my Reader Digest version of what I was going to talk about Easter and the Resurrection so that we can now move in to Peter 
and the resurrection. What do these two things have together? This is what, that's what happened on this day Easter. Now why did the angel tell the women, tell the disciples, and Peter, Peter has to know, he has to know that Jesus rose from the dead. What is with this? Well, let us turn back to Mark chapter 14. And I am going to, that part's paraphrase and that part's read, why Peter had to know that Jesus rose from the dead. This is Peter's own interpretation of the matter. Because, um, you'll see him insert his own name in here several times. So, it's at the Last Supper. The night Jesus is going to be betrayed. Mark 14, verse 30. And they're all sitting at the table. And Jesus says, <coughs> Oh, everyone's joking, laughing, having a good time. Silence, everyone. I have an announcement. Peter. All eyes turn to Peter. Disciples lean forward, eagerly listening. You're going to deny me tonight three times. Never! He bursts out and explodes. I will not, pounding his fist on the table. I would die before I ever deny you. And all the disciples were like, Pep rally, whoa, Peter. And they all, yeah, yeah, he's right. We, we do the same. We'll die before we ever deny you. And I can imagine Jesus going, Peter, Peter. Well, a couple hours later, they retire from supper and they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is on the way to betray Jesus with a band of soldiers to arrest him. And Jesus is extremely in an extreme agony. And he tells the disciples, stay here and pray. I'm going to go pray that the Father helps me take up the cross as he has commanded me to do. And he comes back to the disciples. And what are they doing? They're not praying. They're sleeping. All of them. But Jesus points out Peter in verse 37. He came and found him sleeping and said to Peter, all of them are sleeping, but he says to Peter, Simon, why are you, are you asleep? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Because Peter, <laughs> Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. I know, Peter, that you don't want to deny me, but your flesh is weak, and you're sleeping rather than praying when you need my divine help. Peter, pray. And here we see Peter, confident in himself, so much so, he's not praying for God's grace to guide him through. And so, Judas comes, betrays Jesus. The Roman soldiers take him to the high priest's house. And all the disciples have fled, but Peter's following. Peter's following, but at a distance in verse 54. Peter had followed Jesus at a distance. And right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, the enemy and warming himself at the fire. So Peter's all confident in himself. He's not praying. Now he's following Jesus. Not with him, but far from him. And he starts to warm himself by the enemy's fire. Oh, Peter. He is so set up for epic failure. I have a kid in my YouTube down the hill likes to say. I'm quoting him. This is epic failure of Peter. So a servant girl, while he's warming himself by the fire, comes up to him. <laughs> I know who you are. Starts interrogating him. You're with Jesus, aren't you? I've seen you with him. I know who you are. I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. 
Oh, I hear you now. Your speech betrays you. You're Galilean. The act is holy tells it. You're holy with Jesus. I am definitely not. Yes, you are. Everybody, look, isn't he? I think I've seen him too. And Peter's getting worried here. And in verse 71, it gets so dramatic that he invokes a curse upon himself and says, I do not know the man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. Epic failure. And he totally knows it. And he breaks down and weeps. There's a lesson to be learned here for us. Peter wants us to know I know there's some who read this gospel who have done the same thing that I've done. They have completely failed, taken their own life into their own strength rather than relying upon the strength of Jesus. And it is for you that I want you to know the message of the resurrection, Peter would say. It's you that I speak to. You see, Peter said on that night, when Jesus, you're denying me, Peter. What did he say? I will never deny you. But what should he have said? By the grace of God, I pray I will never deny you. If God so gives me strength, I will never do so. That's why 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, Take heed, Christian. If you think you stand... Take heed lest you fall. You can't be strong in and of yourself. It's as if when Adam ate from the forbidden fruit, that he swallowed with that fruit the seeds of every conceivable heinous crime and sin that you can possibly commit on this universe. And those seeds are transferred into our hearts and they're just sitting there in our hearts waiting to blossom into the most heinous and putrefying fruits of death that sin can produce. And they're just there waiting. And, and, and there's nothing, we don't, there's nothing beyond us to tomorrow wake up and murder three people apart from the grace of God. We have to see, and Peter wants us to know, that in and of ourselves, in our flesh, dwells no good thing. And apart from relying upon Jesus to give us grace and strength to walk with Him, we're going to deny Him. We're going to kill somebody. We're going to do things we never conceived possible. And I've sat on your end before, at your age, and said, I'm never going to sleep with my girlfriend, never. I'm never going to take this. I'm never going to cuss. And I'm never going to look at pornography. And I'm never going to say all these things I'm never going to do. Why? Because I'm a Christian. I'm righteous. I walk with Jesus. But I've had to talk to two of my best friends who said the same thing. Confess in tears, I slept with my girlfriend. I thought I would never do this. And that's the case, Christian. In and of ourselves dwells no good thing. And Peter says, I need you guys to know this, that we're all capable of epic failure if we do not cling to Jesus. That's why Peter wrote in his first epistle, 1 Peter 5, 5, God resists the proud. He can't help the proud, but he gives grace. In other words, he gives help to the humble. So Jesus taught us, Matthew six thirteen to pray. Lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. Cling to him in your prayer and say, Jesus, I don't want to be led into sin today. I want to stay right by you. Give me strength. I know that I am such a wicked, I have such a sick heart that it can happen. But keep me close, Jesus. And David prayed along the same lines in Psalm 19:13 when he said, Teach your servant back from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. That is how Peter would want us to pray in retrospect of his epic failure. And so in seeing Peter's failure, we can now make sense why the angel would come and say, Tell Peter, tell Peter that he is risen. Because Jesus is risen, Peter is forgiven. I think that's the whole point that Peter wants to get across to us by, by phrasing, tell the disciples and Peter that he's risen. Why am Peter? Because Peter wants us to know. He wants us to know that because Jesus is risen, all those who have failed like Peter, all those who have depended upon their own strength and denied Jesus and have sinned against Him and had epic failures and stumbled and it just corrupted themselves and have not trusted upon the only God, He's saying to those people, to those Peters out there, Jesus is risen. And you, as a result, are forgiven. And Jesus wanted Peter to know that, especially Peter. Tell Peter, I'm alive. And it's all going to be okay with him. That's why I believe it says, tell the disciples and Peter. We could essentially insert our names into that phrase in Peter. Jesus would say, Tell the disciples and Jaden. Tell the disciples and Casey. Tell the disciples and Ryan. Jesus is risen and they are forgiven. So, I'm going to blaze through five effects the resurrection has on us. The first being just that. That our Peter-like failures are forgiven because he's risen. That's a glorious effect. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says that if Jesus did not rise from the dead... Our faith is in vain and you are still in your sin. But he's risen. But sin is paid for. That leads to the second effect. And that is, not only is our sin forgiven, but justification is added upon that forgiveness. Romans 4.25 says that Jesus was delivered for, meaning taken to the cross for our sins, and raised for our justification. So he died to forgive us, but he rose to justify us. In simple terms, justification, justified means justified, never sinned. So your sin is removed in forgiveness, but then the righteousness of Christ is added to you. So it's as, not only as if you never sinned, but it's as if you've never been imperfect. You've always been at the level of God, of Jesus Christ. God looks at you and sees there, there's a pure son, a pure daughter. They're justified. My son's righteousness has been, I think it was last week we talked about imputation. His righteousness has been imputed on you. To break this down one more step, um, a great trade occurred at the cross. Jesus went to the cross and my sin was put on him on the cross. Imputed on him. But then he rose from the dead and his righteousness was imputed 
placed on me. So in a sense, my sin was exchanged for his righteousness. It is not just that we are sinless. It's that we're sinless and the righteousness of Christ is added to us. We were in huge debt with sin, but Christ paid for that debt and brought us to even. And then if that wasn't enough, he added to us his righteousness so that we are above the even point. We're soaring high as billionaires in Christ. Spiritually speaking. So his resurrection has provided that justification. And that's where 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin, we took his righteousness. The third effect is that our faith in Jesus unifies us in such a way that we will rise just as Jesus rose. You're unified with Jesus. You're one. Jesus talks about being the branch to a vine, the, the wife of the husband, and um, I always forget the third one. Oh, the body to the head. We're unified with Jesus. And because he rose, we're going to rise too. Now, this happens spiritually when you become a Christian. Romans 6, 4 says that we've been unified with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection that we might walk in newness of life. Peter walked in newness of life. He's no longer denying Jesus, but he's out proclaiming Jesus. And then secondly, this is a physical resurrection that when we die, we will rise just like Jesus did, into new bodies. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. You see, Christ was the first fruit of the resurrection. Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ will rise as well. So he's the first fruits we follow. In other words, you take the first grains of wheat from a harvest, that's Jesus, the first resurrection. Then you got this entire harvest of people waiting to do the exact same thing in the proper time. That's us. That's Christians are going to rise in new bodies with Christ and at the end of the age. Fourth effect. Because he rose, we have a high priest interceding on our behalf before God. He's there defending us so that when we fail like Peter, he says, I died for him. You see the scars, Father. He's good. God, you're right, he's good. He still gets my grace. Jesus intercedes for us. That's Romans 8.34. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read that. And the final effect is that the resurrection raises in us a passion to share. As the angel said, to go and tell the disciples and Peter and all the Peters that we know in this world that Jesus is alive, that he's risen and you can be forgiven, Peter, 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 Peter. You can all be forgiven. It, it brings us passion to share that. But what's ironic, and we're, we're closing with this, what's ironic is that though the angels told the women to do that, Mark doesn't say that they did that. We know that the woman eventually told the disciples, but Mark says that they didn't at first. Look at verse 8. They were sent, or they went out, the women, went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They said nothing to anyone. 
And with that, Peter ends and Mark end the Gospel. The rest of it is actually added by scribes later, we believe. So that's actually where he ends the Gospel. Saying, they didn't tell anyone. Now what's ironic about this is all throughout Mark, Jesus healed people and said, don't tell anyone that I healed you. And what did they go do? They spread it abroad. In fact, when Jesus healed a leper, he says to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but what does the leper do? Mark 1.45 He went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news, so much so that Jesus could no longer enter the town openly. That's sharing the news. But then when the women hear about the resurrection, and Mark ends the gospel there, I think so pointedly, so perfectly, you say, look, people were talking about him, and then he rises and no one talks about him. And I think the point that Mark wants us to get, and Peter with him, is, why is this? This is a catastrophe. This is, ca- this is catastrophic. This is sadder than the sin. This is almost as sad as our sins. Why aren't we telling people? And Peter would want us to know the reason, if we don't feel the passion to share, the reason is this. We haven't experienced failure to the degree that Peter did. Not until we do are we going to have the heart or the passion to share that he's risen and you're forgiven. What do you mean, Brandon? See, Peter didn't just say, I blew it, I know. Oh, thank you for the grace, God. That's so wonderful, Jesus, forgive me. Oh, great, Jesus, yeah, I was cruising through the world in my life. Peter no longer walked in his own strength. He realized that there's nothing good in him, that he has to live the gospel every single day. And when he failed, he knew it. He felt the deserved damnation of hell weighing upon his soul and that only Jesus could save him from that. That's why in verse 71 and 72 of Mark 14 we see that Jesus breaks down and weeps. And Matthew adds, bitterly. He felt the full hatred of God towards his sin. He felt the full failure of his flesh and he was broken about it and wept over his sins. And he got to that place where he knew, not just, oh yeah, the gospel's a great message. Yeah, I, I, I accept that. He got to the place where he knew that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he had no hope. And knew that he rose, gave him literally new life. New life. And Peter went out preaching that Jesus rose from the dead to the day that he died before preaching it. And Peter is saying, and Mark with him at the end of this gospel saying, look, Jesus rose for people like me who failed. And if you're in that category and you weep over your sins, know that He's here to give you new life. And don't shut up about it. Go find the Peters, the perishing, pathetic Peters in your world and tell them He is risen and you can be forgiven. That is what Peter felt in the resurrection. That's what he feels on Easter. And I think that's what he would want to communicate to us this Easter Sunday, tonight. That we hold not our mouths, that we feel the weight of our sins and weep over it and realize, Jesus, because you're risen, I'm forgiven. So go. Go tell them. As the angel said, go tell the Peters. But Brandon, I can't preach like you. You don't have to preach. Be the best friend you can be. Be Jesus to somebody. And just let them know, because He's risen, they're forgiven.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your accomplishments that you haven't left our faith dead in the tomb, but you proved yourself the Son of God and you forgave our sin and you justified us through your resurrection and you want to empower us to share to Peter and all the Peters. God, give us a heart for the Peters around us who rely on themselves and who have failed to share the news with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.